All right, well, uh, it's good to see all of you that I can at least uh, digitally. Uh, glad that you guys are able to make it out. We do appreciate you guys just taking the time to show up and we hope that Praxis is a blessing to you, not just the preaching of the word, but the fellowship we share together, uh, the good laughs uh, during um, our after service hangouts, as well as just being up to speed through announcements. And it's kind of crazy that um, we're in December now, year's almost over. And we're going to finish the book of Malachi tonight. So this is our last regular uh, Praxis night, and we hope to see you next week for our Christmas social. Um, but to close out our time, we're going to be in the book of Malachi. I will be finishing off by studying tonight, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. So I'll go ahead and read our passage for us. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. And then we will pray for the Lord's blessing upon our time. Malachi chapter 4, beginning verse 1. This is the word of God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go up, leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded of your word uh, that att attests to the kind of God you are, that you are a sun and a shield and no good thing do you withhold. And so we can come even now confident that what you will provide from your word is of spiritual benefit. It is advantageous for us, uh, Lord, to sit under the teaching of your word, to have it pierce us and unravel us, that you might build us up, make us more like Christ. And so we ask, Lord, for sight, to see what is valuable and precious in your word, and then to cling on to it so tightly it transforms us that it seeps into how we live, that we might honor you. And so, Lord, may your word be a lamp to our feet, guiding us, Lord, into eternity, and may we be found faithful in the present. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be here, Lord, uh, to instruct and um, to show us Christ, Lord, even as we've just sung. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a popular Christmas song, I'm sure you know it, but in it contains these words. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout, I'm telling you why. The Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, he's checking it twice. I'm gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. You see, even at a young age, Little kids, like my kids, understand the concept 
of coming judgment. It serves as a motivation throughout the year from January all the way to December to culminate on that final day, judgment day, Christmas. And those who are nice, who are on their best behavior throughout the entire year, well, they will be the ones who are rewarded. While those who are naughty, who constantly pout, are going to be in for a rude awakening come Christmas morning. Santa is coming to town. And in the midst of the holiday season, we're reminded, even from a children's Christmas song, that the future should shape and impact how we live in the present. The end can provide motivation for everything else. And this becomes all the more evident as we finish our study in the book of Malachi. It hasn't been the smoothest ride, the most heartwarming journey. As the last book in the Old Testament, we are essentially at the grand finale. We've sped through Israel's history, but it's important to fill in the details to bring us up to this point. You'll recall by synopsis, the birth of a nation, Israel. God chooses and loves, commits himself to this people. And through the centuries, God proves his loyalty, his affection for them. He provides for the Israelites, a cloud by day, fire by night, to guide them. Manna from the skies, to feed them. The law to instruct them. Anointed kings like David, to guide them. Priests like Aaron to help them. Prophets like Isaiah to admonish them. And in the concluding book of the Old Testament, Malachi, where we are, we're given one last update of the Israelites' response. And sadly, a list of their debauchery. We peruse this book and we notice polluted offerings, departure from God's teaching, rampant divorce, and even robbing God. And sure, maybe there was some external compliance, some religious activity here and there, but inside, they're exposed. They belittled and mocked God. And there's no guessing the state of this nation. As we have seen in Malachi, the accusations have been raised, the evidence have been presented, the verdict is clear. Throughout the years, for all of God's faithfulness, the people are unfaithful. This covenant-keeping God has been insulted by the absence of a committed life. And yet at Israel's nadir, their lowest point, God is still gracious. One last exhortation for them to consider their ways and repent, to return. And God does this, interestingly enough, by projecting them to the very end, to examine themselves in light of the day of reckoning. You see, the future should shape and impact how they live in the present. And in our passage tonight, we're told there's only two possible sides, two possible outcomes. A line is drawn in the sand between the righteous and the unrighteous. Last week, if you were here, Chris introduced this topic to us. And this week, the distinction between the two is carried to its natural and ultimate conclusion. In fact, to show you how tightly knit this section is with the previous, uh, in the Hebrew, the original language, there's actually no chapter four, like what we have in our English transla translations. But we have a new chapter in our Bibles 
to draw attention and tie everything up. But in the Hebrew, Malachi 4 verses 1 to 6 is actually just Malachi chapter 3 verses 19 to 24. And that's some fun Bible trivia for you, but it also highlights the continuation, the climax of the topic, a fitting capstone for this last book. And in our final section, Malachi, God concludes his treatment on the righteous and the unrighteous by asking and answering two questions. First, what then? Or put another way, what will happen in the future? So what then? And then second, what now? Or what are we to do then in the present? And that's kind of how uh, we will structure our time. That will be the outline for our passage. So first, what then? What then? Look again at verse one. It reads this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So here we're launched to the day that is approaching. And if we scan our passage, we recognize this day is extraordinary. It is a day in which God will act in some unique way, verse 3. It is characterized as great and awesome in verse 5. And in the Old Testament, the prophets refer to this period as the day of the Lord, an appointed time of apocalyptic judgment. Why? Well, our passage colors in the picture. We examine first the fate of the unrighteous. So this is kind of a sub point to our main first question, what then? The fate of the unrighteous. Verse one here is giving us the visual. And in this image, you have an oven or probably more helpful, a furnace. Something that is smoldering, piping hot, radiating, ready to burn whatever is put into it. And so think less of baking a tasty pie and more of a fiery furnace like the one Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tossed into to be incinerated. God preserved those three then, but on this coming day, the text tells us all the arrogant, all evildoers will be consumed. To continue painting the scene, these people are likened to stubble. Stubble. So we're talking about stuff like straw, chaff, something dry and dispensable, underlining both their ultimate insignificance and how dangerously combustible they are. And what characterizes these people? They're arrogant. They're evildoers. And this is something to stop and mull over. You see, we might dismiss the wicked in verse 18 as those people who are especially bad and despicable, you know, like the Hitlers and Stalins of the world. And we might even distance ourselves from the label of evildoers in verse one as well. We think that title is just reserved for serial killers, rapists. But when the arrogant, when the arrogant are included lumped together with these two other labels, we should pause. God is sweeping us into the same category. After all, the wicked and evildoers are really just arrogant at heart. The difference is in the intensity of that expression. This verse is rebuking all of us. 
showing us that we're all culpable. God declares the fate of all the unrighteous. On that coming day, it's as if God is going to light the match and set them all ablaze. Living on the West Coast, we've seen the destruction of these Californian fires. They rage across the land, leaving black cinder and charred grounds. And just in case we're too dense to get it, God spells it out for us. This blaze is going to destroy everything. So burnt and scorched, it will leave them neither root nor branch. Complete destruction. Now, this is difficult news to receive and digest, but one so necessary, I think, for our times. We need this corrective since it's so easy to assess what's going on around us by what we see rather than what God says. So don't confuse the prosperity of the wicked with peace of God. Don't mix up delayed punishment with divine approval. God will right every wrong. It's just a matter of timing. And so just because your colleague, your sibling or acquaintance, they get away with cheating, abusing, slandering now, it doesn't mean that they won't be accountable then. Instead, the Bible teaches us that God's patience is actually intended to lead us towards repentance, not a license to indulge in our flesh. Because when the day of the Lord comes, the opportunity will be over. Verse 1 is allowing us to travel down the corridors of time and peek at what's to come. It provides perspective when we get hung up, frustrated with all the violence, cheating, and perversion of our day. And we cry out, how long, O Lord? Well, God would say, look to that day. As Christians, we've heard how our suffering is not for nothing. Well, the same goes with our faithful obedience, which brings us to the next subpoint. What then? Here's the second part, the fate of the righteous. You see, the day of the Lord is a frightening event for the unrighteous. And yet, in the backdrop of a total destruction, unquenchable flames, the terror of judgment, God paints a separate portrait of the righteous. Same day, different picture. And in verses 2 and 3, we examine the fate of the righteous. Look again at your Bibles. It says, but showing contrast There's something else different, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now it's interesting because God doesn't address Israel per se. He speaks to a remnant. And what marks out this group? Well, notice God doesn't lock in on their ethnicity or culture. The trait God locks in on is fear. Those who fear him. You could say he focuses on those who are focused on him. The wicked, all the arrogant, and all evildoers do not fear God. You know why? Because they're too busy playing God, doing and living however they want, ignoring the one that they will have to answer to. 
but it's those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at God's word, who are broken by their own brokenness, acknowledging that arrogance only invites judgment. Those are the ones God looks upon because in their neediness, they look to God. They fear him. You know, there's an amazing phenomenon early on as a parent. Uh, when you discipline your kid, they actually don't run away and recoil from you. you now, at a tender young age, even after they're being punished and tears are streaming down hot on their cheek and their, their nose is just clogged with snot, they still seek out dad or mom. They intuitively understand The one they fear is still the one they need, the one who loves them. And I love how this is encapsulated in verses like Hosea 6, verse 1, where the prophet says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. And what's true back then is still true today. The God who is holy enough to call us sinners is also the God gracious enough to save us sinners. But it's on his terms. Salvation by faith, not by works. You see, God does not grade us by our perfect church attendance or our Bible reading streak. The Israelites are a clear example of this. They try to play the part to do all the deeds, but despise God in their heart. They gave attention to the duties instead of their Lord. And as important as extracurriculars may be, they are still extra, secondary to what's primary. And God distills it down to something greater, something far and wider reaching, something much more fundamental. Do you fear him? Do you acknowledge the the creator-creature distinction? Do you cast yourself upon his mercy? Do you abhor self and sin so you cry to him for saving? Well, if that's you, I have a good news. In God's kindness, he provides the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now, what's that about? Well, back in the ancient Near East, the sun was highly regarded. It was symbolic for vitality and strength. The sun was often depicted as this winged disc. And so you might see it today if you're ever at like a jewelry store where you have a precious stone and surrounding that precious stone are wings. Uh, You can Google it later if you're curious, uh, but those necklaces and pins actually draw their inspiration from this imagery. The idea was that the sun's beams were healing, that under the sun's wings, life would flourish. And the Old Testament expanded on this. You read the Psalms and prophets and you find God's glory described as shining like the sun or his rule and reign rising like the morning, a welcomed and healing light. You read of famous passages like Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds, we are healed. These motifs occur over and over again to prepare us. And we find the last allusion in the Old Testament here in verse 2. 
It's not hard to see who God is referring to. The sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings will literally be the sun, S-O-N, of the righteous. And verse 2 ends with a beautiful description about calves leaping from the stall. Do you ever watch an animal freed from their cage? could be calves, horses, dogs. It's all the same, right? They spring with exuberance and joy. And the reason is quite simple. It's the natural reaction for those who have been liberated. And that's what happens when the sick, the lame, and the lost encounter Jesus Christ in the Gospels. You know, the blind have tears in their eyes when when their sight is restored to them. The invalid and crippled leap with joy. The dead are raised, energized, and ecstatic at being alive. And beloved, if that be true for those who find physical healing, how much more for those of us who are spiritually restored, who are no longer under the condemnation of death, but have their souls free from the bondage of sin? You analyze these first three verses, and you'll notice something. They are heavy with imagery. You ever wonder about that? Like, why all the illustrations, metaphors, similes, and other literary devices when plain language will suffice? I'll tell you why. Because the glory of the gospel is truth to be felt, not just understood. Yes, we process the info with our heads, but the good news is always aimed at our hearts. It's vivid, so it becomes visceral until we're pulled in to participate, press for a decision. Which party do you align with? Who do you side with? Two fates presented to us so that we compare and contrast. The unrighteous will be incinerated. They will perish. Their lives will amount to nothing more than ash under the feet of the redeemed. But for those who fear God, a brighter fate awaits. You thought the furnace was blazing. Gaze at the sun of righteousness. Jesus Christ shows up. And what does he announce? He says, I am the light of the world. And he beams brightest in the darkest of nights when he spreads his arms, his wings, if you will, on the cross so that all who humble themselves and draw near find healing, find freedom, find salvation. That the chains of sin are smashed. That the penalty is paid. The dead are raised. And we do better than emerge from the grave. We leap. Joy that erupts onto our faces and courses into our lives. The coming day is not one of great horror, like for the unrighteous, but a grand celebration. A day we long for because it's reunion time with our Lord and Savior. If that's the preview of the end, what should we do? How should we live? We reach our second question for tonight. In light of the future... How are we to live? What now? What now? And here in the remaining verses, Moses and Elijah are presented to us, two major characters in the Old Testament, somewhat representative of the law and the prophets. 
And you could even say the summation of the entire Old Testament is packaged into these last three verses in the Old Testament. And from these two figures, we can unpack the answer to that question, what now? Much of the Christian life boils down into obey and wait. Wait and obey. First, we see encouragement to obey through Moses in verse 4. It reads, remember the law of my servant, Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And curious enough, nowhere else in the Old Testament is someone exhorted to remember God's law, which underscores the seriousness and the importance of this. We have to understand, to the Jews, remembering was more than just mental recollection or regurgitating information stored in your heads. It went a step further. Remembering was putting all that data into action, into play. And you get a sense of this once you realize the verb remember here is an imperative. The command to these Jews is to remember and then obey the law, obey God, which is, if you think about it, pretty astonishing given the context. Because what's been normative, what's been typical What has been habitual of these Israelites? Well, from the very day they received the law at Horeb, another name for Sinai, they have failed to be faithful to this very charge. We're talking about centuries, generations, a large time frame, sufficient sample size. And yet, God is gracious. He doesn't abandon his people. He doesn't just cancel his covenant and rip the law from them. No, even in his admonishment, he is highlighting his relationship with them, presenting them with an opportunity. My word, my word is still your word. It is for all Israel. So capitalize upon this opportunity. Remember, return, and obey. And this might seem to make a mountain out of a molehill, but there is much to chew on for us. In Christ, in Christ. God does not abandon his people, forsake his promises, or retract his word from us. No matter how foolish we are, whether we've rebelled for the first time or we've been wayward for years, God is faithful to his people. He beckons us to obey. And this is fleshed out for us in the New Testament, in the teachings of Jesus Christ, when he speaks of what it looks like to have this kind of relationship with him. You have John 15. really famous, really familiar, when Jesus says, abide in me, and I will abide in you. And that sounds pretty lofty, esoteric, a lot of churchy language, but abide is simply the idea of dwelling, living, communing with God, and he with you. But we still might be stumped. Well, how does this actually happen? How is this Achieved? Is it through a special prayer, a a spiritual feeling that I have inside? Well, Jesus continues and he sheds light. If you abide in me, so here it is again, dwell, live, commune. But now the clue is given. Here's the key. So if you abide in me and my words, my words abide in you. That's how we commune together. You see, God's word is the house where you meet and live with him. 
And for these Israelites, it meant rehearsing the commandments of God until it confronted them with their helplessness, convicting them both of their sinful rebellion and their need of a savior. They went to the law and they examined it and then they saw their brokenness. It functioned like a mirror for them. And so the same for us. We remember the law until it drives us to Christ, to commune with him, to delight in his word until we do it. And for some of you, it's expressed in confessing your sin for the first time and throwing yourself upon the mercy of God and the gift of his son. For others of you who've been around the block, who know the gospel, who who grew up in the church, who have a relationship with Christ for years, it's demonstrated in rehearsing the gospel to find second wind, to press on, endure, and run the race. But the Israelites were not only supposed to look back at the law and allow that to shape their present, they were also supposed to look forward and also allow that to shape their present. And this is where we get to the second part of the answer to what should we do? What should we do? We we not only remember and obey, but we look and wait. We look and we wait. But it's not something where we're just idle. It's actually a looking and a waiting that responds. We see this beginning verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, This is a hard verse to grasp apart from really knowing Elijah. And so on your own time, I would encourage you to read about him in 1st and 2nd Kings. But Elijah is the major prophet of Israel. He shows up when Israel has rejected God, prostituting themselves to pagan idols, to these foreign nations. And Elijah then calls the people to wholehearted repentance, to turn back. And in order to authenticate both his role and his message, he performs these crazy miracles like resurrecting a widow's son or calling down fire in his showdown with the prophets of Baal. The end of his ministry is just as spectacular because Elijah doesn't physically die. God sends a chariot of fire to lift Elijah up into the heavens. And with that, he's gone. So it's not surprising Elijah was a bit of the talk of the town. To the Jews, his strange and unusual exit off stage made him quite the celebrity. They would ask each other, where where did he go? What happened to him? Is he just gone? But in verse 5, the mystery is uncovered. Because finally the people are informed. As a precursor, as a forerunner, as someone who prepares the way, To the great and awesome day of the Lord, Elijah will return. To do what? Well, verse 6 tells us. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so like before, Elijah's ministry will be to call the people to repent, a turning to God so thorough and genuine It will impact some of the most intimate and messiest of relationships, that between fathers and children. Now, I'm sure you don't need to be persuaded of how dysfunctional family relationships can be. The fact that you don't need a story or antidote already proves that it is a prevailing problem, even today. 
But the solution to these deep-seated issues between parents and children can only be found in the gospel. All the scandals and wrongs committed from Isaac and Jacob, David and Absalom, to what happens today will only be resolved by the good news of Christ. And God promises it to us. God prophesies it to the Israelites. Elijah is returning to turn the hearts of the people back to God and therefore back to one another. And 400 years later, and John the Baptist appears. And we catch a glimpse of this power. In fact, John's ministry is so unique and miraculous, so eerily similar to Elijah's, people start questioning the connection. Is this the guy God prophesied about back in Malachi? And so they ask him straight up, you know, in John 1.21, are you Elijah? To which John deflates the hype by responding, no. But that doesn't settle the issue because we're perplexed when we read later on in Matthew 11, verse 14, that Jesus announces that John is Elijah who is to come. And so we're left stumped. Which is it? You know, is John the Baptist Elijah to come or is he not? Well, perhaps the verse that clarifies it the most for us is the one that quotes Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 directly. And so in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, uh, you can turn there or you can just listen, uh, but you'll pick up on the explanation. It's kind of like reading a commentary on our passage in Malachi. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 to 17 says this, and he, uh, speaking of John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will keep, go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So that still leaves you puzzled. Maybe an illustration will help. If you're a basketball fan, I'm sure uh, you know about LeBron James. And when he entered the league, there was a lot of buzz surrounding him. Even before he actually played an official NBA game, everyone touted him as the greatest prospect, the greatest basketball player since another man named Michael Jordan. And some people saw such strong similarities that they were hailing uh, LeBron James as the next MJ. LeBron even shared Jordan's number, number 23. Now, was LeBron James, Michael Jordan, reincarnate? Obviously not. I mean, Jordan is still alive today. But all these claims that LeBron was just like his predecessor were justified because people recognize the same greatness, the same kind of domination of the game, the same role and impact he would make on the NBA. LeBron James followed in the footsteps of number 23 and carried the spirit and power of Jordan. And the coming of John the Baptist is nostalgic just like that. His ministry is hitched to Elijah's because it carries the same weight, mission, and message. Repent of your sins and believe. Prepare yourself for the Lord. He is coming. And this has been God's M.O. Starting with Elijah, he sends a line of prophets whenever his people depart from his word. And all these different mouthpieces come declaring the word of God. So the message and response is unequivocal. 
so that it's clear. Watch out, beware, repent. So practice, how are you doing in heating? By way of application, maybe some diagnostic questions. What is your attitude towards your sin? What's your response or lack thereof? You know, are you apathetic towards your sin, shrugging it off with arrogance, or is there a growing sensitivity, a growing disdain for your flesh? Do you hate your sin more today than last year? Is there a deeper longing and desperation for Christ? Is there a turning? Point blank, when it comes to sin, do you flee from God or to God? Return because Jesus is returning. Moses and Elijah, two pillars in the Old Testament. Together, they stood for the law and the prophets, and they foretold the coming of Christ. Together, they represented God's charge to his people. Obey and wait, wait and obey. And these famous Old Testament saints, well, they reappear in the New Testament so as to amplify the message once and for all. I'm sure you recall the momentous occasion uh, because Pastor Kim just preached on it last Sunday. But Jesus ascends a different mount on the Mount of Transfiguration when God meets his son. Jesus peels back his humanity to unveil his divine glory. And there are two other people present for this awesome event, Moses and Elijah. And on the sacred mountaintop, a voice booms from the clouds. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then what? You want application? Well, here's a directive to Jesus' followers. Listen to him. Listen to him. And the disciples fall to their faces in absolute dread and fear until Jesus taps them on their shoulders. And they rise to see no one but Christ. Moses and Elijah, they disappear, fading from the scene, if you will, so as to represent how they find their terminus, their completion in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the centerpiece. And now we obey and wait, wait and obey the Son of God. We remember and keep his word while we look and long for his return. Back in Malachi, this is the last prophet with the last verse, verse 6. And it ends on a sobering warning. It says, essentially, do this, all that he's laid out in his previous verses. Do this, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's no happily ever after. No hallmark Christmas ending. This is the Old Testament version of turn or burn. In fact, whenever the Jews read Malachi in the synagogue, it was custom to read verse 5 again after verse 6 because they didn't want to end on such a sour and bleak note. But in God's wisdom, it's all intentional. From dusk to dawn, it's darkest before the dawn. You see, for 400 years after this, there is no other revelation, no other word from God. And the Israelites, well, they squirm in despair. Is it over for us? Has God forsaken us? Where's God in his covenant love? And for all of their questions, God stays silent. 
until the very first Christmas. Then they receive another word, the final word, the word of God made flesh, who dwells among us that we might see his glory full of grace and truth. And in God's providence, we finish our study of Malachi right before Christmas, about two weeks and change. And it is appropriate for us to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of righteousness born in a humble manger, to know this crucial moment in redemptive history will find its bookend when Christ comes a second time, when the covenant-keeping God makes good on his last promise, and we are with him forever. Lives full of joy and devotion to our Lord and Savior. But until then, we wait and obey. Obey and wait and anticipation of that great and awesome day. Let's pray. God, we need tough passages like this to orient ourselves in uh, your sovereign timeline, to know where we stand redemptively. Lord, that Christ has come and he is coming again. And Lord, if that is truth, if that is reality, uh, for those of us who are uh, believers, that is good news. That is news good enough to inform how we live every day, the details of our lives. Lord, may we therefore be all the more serious about following Jesus, repenting and obeying, clinging to your word, for it is indeed precious to us. Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that this would convict them. Lord, that your word would be a sword and cut through them and show them their sins, and yet at the same time that it would be a light directing them towards the light of the world, your son, who is ransomed and redeemed a sinners out of the domain of darkness and into your kingdom. And Lord, that this salvation is extended free of charge. And the only requirement is that we would stoop low, that we would repent and place our faith in Christ. For all of us, the, the gospel is news uh, so laden with a comfort so rich in truth that we do well to mull over it, to uh, abide in your word that we might abide in Christ and uh, live uh, in a way that is transformed, that honors and pleases your son. And we know we can't do this on our own ability, by our own strength or discipline. And so even in our desire to follow you, we cry for help. Be with us now, even as we sing, as we go off into small groups, that we would consider these things and uh, discuss them until uh, we put them into practice for our joy and for your glory. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.